I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Most of you know that I am a beekeeper. And uh, in a bee house, there are usually two boxes where the bees live. Those boxes are called supers. So there are usually two boxes of supers where the bees live. And that's where you want the queen to stay. And she lays her eggs in those boxes. And then uh, when there is a significant bloom and a nectar flow, then beekeepers will put extra supers on top of the house where the bee lives. Those are called honey supers. 
And we really hope that the queen stays down in the two brood supers and that she won't lay eggs in the honey supers. But it's inevitable that sometimes the queen gets up into the honey supers and lays some eggs. And uh, then when the honey is ready to harvest, I or whoever the beekeeper is will have some means of trying to get the bees out of the honey supers and forcing them down into the brood super so that we can take the honey supers off. And uh, the method that is most effective uh, for me is that I use what's called a fume board. I'll spray uh, some kind of a natural natural chemical onto a, a board, put that in, on top of the hive, and then the sunshine will cause those fumes to irritate the bees and they'll go down into the brood boxes. And that's very effective unless there is brood in the honey. And when there's some brood, when there's some baby bees that have not yet hatched that are in the honey supers, then bees are very reluctant to leave those baby bees, and they'll stay with them. And so, you know, when I'm harvesting honey, I usually try to pull the honey supers in the morning and harvest it that afternoon. I don't have all day... And so I can't get every single bee out of the honey supers. I just go ahead and take the honey supers with the, the few bees that are left. And there may be a few hundred that are left in the honey supers. And so I might come back to my house with uh, 10 or 12 honey supers. And there might be a couple thousand bees in there. And uh, some of those bees will fly off and they'll fly to the window in my garage. They want to get out. But a lot of those a lot of those bees will stay right there with those baby bees. In fact, uh, these honey supers might be taken from five or six or ten different hives, and I've noticed that all these other bees from these various hives will get together and they'll pool their sources to take care of the baby bees. So it always impresses me. I, I feel sorry for those bees, the, the, the adult bees that Get. I say, well, you, you, are, you are the ones who really have stuck with the task. You, you refused to leave when the, the fumes were irritating everybody else. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for the way things have turned out for you. <laughs> because once they're far away from their hive, they're never going to find their way back to the hive. But it just amazes me the way that they will pool all of their resources in, in all of their distress, they are saying, we are going to take care of these baby bees. And um, I, I'm just so impressed with the way that God has programmed it into, into mothers and dads to take care of their offspring. It, it's, it's in the animal kingdom. I've seen, I've seen mice uh, defy all of their terror to come and get a baby mouse that fell out of a a box that I picked up, and here comes that mama mouse back. I just, I, I have a tendency to personify everything, and so I think of what that baby mouse must be thinking. Yeah, baby mouse is probably not thinking anything, but I, I just imagine that the baby mouse is thinking, oh, I am in trouble now. Now is big trouble, and then here comes mama. Here comes mama. And uh, she picks up that baby mouse and, uh, and takes the baby mouse to safety. Just so impressed with that. <clears throat> George W. Truett, famous preacher from the first part of the 1900s, told a story. And I heard him on tape and I also read it in one of his books. 
how that in the days when uh, the horse and buggy days, there was a a man who was in town, I assume. I can't remember all the details of the story. We'll fill it in as it needs to be. He was in town, and uh, he was sitting in the seat of his wagon when something spooked the horses, and they took off running. And uh, the, ba- the wagon was bouncing so violently that uh, it knocked him off of the wagon, but he held on to the reins. And so here this team of horses is just running madly, and he's hanging on to the reins. And uh, it's dragging him over rocks and over cactus and over plants, and it's going to kill him. And so the people are shouting, let go of the reins, let go of the reins. But he wouldn't let go. Finally, he got the horses stopped. And uh, as they came upon him bloody and bleeding and dying, they said, man, why didn't you let go of the reins? And he said, look in the wagon. And they looked in the wagon, and there wrapped up was a baby. Gave his life to protect the baby. I tell those stories at the beginning of this exposition of the first part of Revelation chapter 7 because the Lord has pronounced that he is going to bring a very severe judgment upon Jerusalem. The Lord warned about it. The Lord Jesus warned about it almost 40 years before it took place. And, uh, and now the time has come. The time has come for the, uh, the city of Jerusalem to be destroyed. But before he lets the forces of destruction loose upon the city of Jerusalem, he takes care of his babies. He sends forth his angels and saying, Not yet. Don't let the destruction go yet. I have some people in Jerusalem that I need to take care of. There are, uh, the Bible tells us that there were a great many Christians who heeded the advice of Jesus, who said, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, then you leave Jerusalem and flee. You leave in such a hurry so that if you're on the rooftop, don't you go down and try to gather your possessions, you leave. It's going to be hard for women who are responsible with carrying children in those days. There's going to come severe severe destruction upon Jerusalem. You get out as quickly as you can, and you get out as best you can. And history tells us that many thousands of the Christians obeyed Jesus, and they were spared all of the terrible destruction that came upon Jerusalem. They escaped to a city called Pella. At the end of chapter 6, In verse 17, the Bible says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When uh, the Lord Jesus has John write this, he is making reference to an Old Testament verse of Scripture which you may turn to now in the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find the book of Matthew and then just go back a page or two to Malachi chapter 3, we find this passage of Scripture which predicts that before the destruction that the Lord threatens against Jerusalem, He's going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way. That messenger was John the Baptist. 
And uh, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, we read this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Well, that sounds like, that sounds like a good day. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Ah, he's not, predicting, he's not predicting the coming of baby Jesus in the temple. He's not predicting the coming of the adult Jesus to cleanse the temple. He's predicting the coming of the judging Jesus who is going to pour out his judgment on Jerusalem. So who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like fuller soap. But notice that question. Who can stand when he appears? This is going to be a dreadful, a fearful appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in judgment on Jerusalem. He's like a refiner's fire. The kind of a fire that is built so that impurities will be purged out of the, uh, the metal that is being heated. Like a fuller's soap. Back in those days, uh, soap was made with lye, and I don't know if any of you have ever worked with lye, but uh, several years ago, I was going to tan some deer hides, and in order to get the hair and the epidermis off the deer hide, you've got to submerge them in a, some kind of solution that will make the hides swell up. And the old way of doing it was to mix up some hardwood ashes with some water, and then you submerge that hide down in that slurry and then, uh, so I'd done that. The hide was called bucked. So I'd, I'd bucked the hide. And I brought it out, and uh, it was kind of a cold day. And uh, I was going to scrape all the hair and the epidermis off of that hide. And uh, as I was scraping, I noticed that there were little bits of flesh that were on my hands. But I just kept on working and finished my work. And when the when the day was finished, and I washed my hands. Those little bits of flesh were not from the deer hide. It was my own flesh. That lie in that solution had eaten holes in my hands. I, I still got scars on my hands from the, the power of that, that lie. I wanted it just to take off the, make it easier to take off the deer, the, the deer hair and the epidermis. But that, that lie and that fuller soap, it's very caustic. And so the question is asked in, he, in, in Malachi verse three, chapter 3, who can stand? Who can stand when the Lord comes? And that's the question that is echoed at the end of chapter 6. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We read in chapter 7 that the, the doom that is anticipated in the seals is temporarily delayed. I have a tendency to think that the progression of the book of Revelation is this way. That there, first of all, are seals that are on a scroll. Remember that the scroll represents the administration of God's kingdom, and it is taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody in heaven recognizes that he's the only one who is worthy to do this. So he goes to the throne of God, he takes the scroll from God, and there are seven seals on it. And last week we saw how that he opened the first 
six seals. And the first four seals were four horses with riders. And they represented uh, various plagues. So the, the first, the white horse is a, a rider comes out. He has a bow. He's given a crown. He comes out conquering and to conquer. Uh, so that could be the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it could be one of the Roman officials that was used to, uh, to marshal the Roman armies, armies against, Israel, against Israel and Jerusalem in particular. The second horse comes out. It's bright red. He's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. He's given a great sword, and so war is coming. The third horse comes out. It's a black horse. Its rider has a pair of scales in his right hand. It's a time of famine. A quart of wheat sold for one day's wages, three quarts of barley for one day's wages. Fourth horse comes out, and he's a sickly green color like infected pus. He comes out, he's a sickly green color, and he's there. They're permitted. The rider is death. He's followed by Hades. They're permitted to take. Uh, they're permitted to uh, hurt the land with, uh, with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Those are the first four horses. And then there is a cry from under the altar when the fifth seal is opened. There's a cry that comes from under the altar. How long, O Lord, sovereign Lord, faithful and true, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs who, whose blood has been poured out at the altar. And the Lord says, just be patient. Wait a little while. He gives them a white robe and tells them, you've got to wait until the full number of your brothers and fellow servants who are to be slain, just as you are, is going to be completed. And then when the sixth seal is open, then we see that uh, it's, a, it's a new world. The old world is destroyed and a new world comes. There's, the sun becomes black like sackcloth. The moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky fall to the earth like, like a, when a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale and so on. And then, so that's the seals. There are six seals. Now the seventh seal is an introductory seal and it introduces trumpets. So here's the way I see it. The seals are telling you the destruction that is coming. Trumpets are instruments of warning. And so the trumpets of warning say, if you don't repent, here is what is going to come. And then they don't repent, and so then follow the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the land of Jerusalem and on the land of Israel and on Jerusalem in particular. I think that all three groupings, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, are all covering the same, the same territory. And that will become especially apparent when we get into comparing the, uh, the trumpets with the bowls of wrath, they essentially affect the same things. First one's poured out on the earth, second one's poured out on the ocean, third one's poured out on the, the, uh, the rivers and the seas of water, the fourth one's poured out on the sun, and so on. So they're, I think it's pretty clear that they're covering the same material. And, uh, but now we are in the section where the Lord has said, here's what's coming. Before it comes, I'm going to protect my babies. Before it comes, I'm going to set a mark, I'm going to set a seal on the people. Now, there's an Old Testament background to this scene, and the first verse of Scripture, I'll just quote for you. It's in Psalm 104 and verse 4. It says, He makes His servants winds. He makes His messengers winds. I'm emphasizing it. His messengers a flame of fire. That's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 1. But it first shows up in Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes his servants 
winds, W-I-N-D-S. And then I'll have you turn now to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. And uh, Zechariah also near the end of the Old Testament, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's the next to last book in the Old Testament. And in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we see what serves as the Old Testament background to the horses and the winds. So in chapter 6, we saw the four horses. Now in chapter 7, we see four angels standing at the four corners of the land, holding back the, the four winds. I think that they are the same thing. I think that the horses are the winds. And uh, I base that on what it says here in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Okay, that's, that's as far as we need to read this, uh, the first five verses. But you see the, the association of the horses with the winds. So now back in, in Revelation chapter 7, so when he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, let me remind you that the word earth can, I think, more accurately be translated land. I don't think that we're uh, looking at a, a cosmic destruction here. I think that we're looking at the destruction of the land of Israel. Just remember that John says in chapter 1 and in chapter 22, these things are about to take place. The time is near. Jesus also said all of this is going to happen within the generation of the people who were listening to him. And so now about 40 years later, this destruction of Jerusalem is about to take place. And the Lord says, wait a minute, before the destruction comes, there's something important that needs to be done. And so these four angels holding back what in the previous chapter was represented as the four horsemen, holding back the four winds so that no wind might blow on the land or the sea or against any tree. But here comes another angel in verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, saying, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the four angels are holding back the four destructive horses, and the reason for the delay is because there's a baby in the wagon. An angel arises with the seal of the living God. Now we need to look at the Old Testament background for this. So the, the angel is going to put a seal on the foreheads, of those who are going to be spared. 
So the danger here is not in the fact that there is no wind. The danger is when the winds are released, when the horses are released and the destruction comes on Jerusalem. But before that, the angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Now, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. We'll see the, we'll see the Old Testament background for this symbolic gesture. I'll talk in just a few minutes about the significance of the seal. But first of all, in Exodus chapter 28, look at verses 36 through 38. Exodus 28, 36. This chapter is telling about the garments that the high priest was to wear. And it says, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So on this little, on this little gold plate, inscribe the words, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead so that they may be accepted before the Lord. So part of the, part of the high priest's costume was that he would have this little gold plate that he would wear on his forehead, and it said, Holy to the Lord. Now turn forward a few pages to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 8. Somebody asked me about this uh, passage of Scripture on Wednesday night. Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 8. Just been told that you shall teach the commandments of the Lord to your children. And now it says in verse 8, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Someone was asking me on Wednesday night, Why is it when you see uh, Jewish people depicted of going in and out of their house, they kiss their hand and then touch the side of their house? It's because... They have this passage of Scripture written on the doorposts of their house, and it's a way of showing respect to, uh, to the Word of God. But, um, and some of the Jews take this literally, and they would wear uh, something on their heads that would have the, uh, a, little, a little container with a scroll with the Word of God in it, or wear something on their hand that had a little scroll. I think that it's symbolic that this is supposed to be so important to you that it is as if... It is on your forehead. It is as if it is on your hand. And then, if I had not already read to you Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, I would have you turn there again. That was our first scripture reading. But there in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, we read how that at a, at a previous time, God was going to destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so about almost six, about 600 years before the book of Revelation and the destruction of Jerusalem. But in 586, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so God tells, gives this vision to Ezekiel, before the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, go, 
there, Ezekiel sees a vision of a man who has a writing apparatus with him, and he goes through and he marks, he marks on the forehead those who are to be spared from the destruction. So now we go back to Revelation chapter 7, and we see that this, this is all the sort of thing that we ought to hold in mind when we see that the Lord is marking people by putting a seal on their forehead. It's like the seal that was put on the forehead of the high priest. It was like the seal of protection that was put on the, the uh, symbolically put on the foreheads of the people in Jerusalem who were to be spared in 586 B.C. So the significance of the seal is these people are to be spared. And many Christians did escape the city. It also says, a seal says, these are my people. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Lord puts a seal, the Holy Spirit puts a seal on, the, on His people. And this guarantees that we're going to receive the inheritance. This is a way of the Lord saying, these are my people. But also, it's a way of saying, these are my priests. And it was priests who had this golden plate on their head. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, under the Old Covenant, in order to, I mean, you, no, no one who was a private citizen could just come into the Holy of Holies. You had to be a priest. Now, through the New Covenant, the middle, the middle wall of partition has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles, and so people of all nations are able to enter into the most holy place because the veil of the temple was torn in two when Jesus died, showing that now we may come and we don't have to have a earthly priest to bring us in there. We do have to have a heavenly priest, but that heavenly priest is Jesus Christ who has gone before us into the most holy place. But now we are a kingdom and priests to God. Another reason why the seal is put on the forehead is that the forehead is an obvious place. It means I am not ashamed of the fact that I belong to Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I am a priest of the Lord. And I, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm a Christian. This is not the last time in the book of Revelation that we're going to see significant marks put on someone's forehead or on someone's hand. So everyone's all very interested in what is the mark of the beast? Who is the beast? And what does it mean that his mark is put upon the forehead? I don't believe that it is a literal mark. I don't believe that it is a literal mark that's put on the forehead or a little mark that is put on the hand. I think the symbolic significance of it is, is that these people are saying, I'm not ashamed to affiliate myself with the beast. I am willing to submit to the rules of the beast. You'll just have to wait until we see who the beast is. But I'm willing to submit to the rules of the beast so that I can participate in commerce because no one is allowed to buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast or the number of its name on his forehead or on his hand. And then later in the book of Revelation we see a great prostitute. And on, her and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. 
But then there's one other time that we see in the book of Revelation, someone written uh, with something written on his forehead, and that's when we see a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ on a white horse, and he is bearing on his name a name that no one knows but he himself. And so this idea of being identified with a people or with a cause or with a person by having something on your forehead is something that recurs in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. And I think here, the seal in Revelation chapter 7 is a way of saying, these are my people, and they're not ashamed of it. Now, another very controversial thing that we have here in this chapter is the 144,000. So, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, and... uh, He says that it was 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Who are the 144,000? Let's first of all see that uh, 144,000 is a symbolic number. And uh, I hope that this makes sense to you. There were 12 sons of Israel, and those 12 sons of Israel became the 12 tribes of Israel. And And those tribes are mentioned symbolically here. I say they're mentioned symbolically because this is is not a complete list. Well, there are 12 that are mentioned here, but somebody's missing. Dan is missing. Dan is not mentioned here. And then another one of the tribes, Ephraim, is not mentioned. Instead, Joseph is substituted for Ephraim. Joseph was divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim is not mentioned Manasseh is. And some people say, well, you know, maybe Ephraim and Dan were left out because those were tribes that were notorious for idolatry. And that could be the case. But I think that the more likely explanation is, hey, this is not a literal, it's not a not to be taken literally. This is not saying that there will only be 144,000 people saved out of the, the nation of Israel. Instead, I think that this is a representative number. There were 12 sons of Jacob. Jesus chose 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. Multiplied by 1,000, you get 144,000. I think that the number 1,000 is a symbolic number in the Bible that represents a very full, complete number. Very full, complete. So, not literally a thousand, but a very full and complete. So, I think that's what the 144,000 represents. It's not just the people who are going to be saved out of ethnic Israel, but I think that it represents all of the elect. In the near history, those who were saved out of Jerusalem, but in the overall history of things, all of the saved who will be in heaven one day. I think that the second half of the chapter is a, a vision of the church triumphant in heaven. But uh, So I think that's the, the symbolism of the number 144,000. It represents completeness and it represents abundant grace to multitudes. And I think that the fact that these tribes are from the nation of Israel says something, a couple of very important things. One thing is, 
God is not going to totally, in the destruction of Jerusalem, God is not going to totally shut the door for salvation of anyone from ethnic Israel. So people who are in their blood, in their ethnicity, Israelites, can still be in the kingdom of heaven, but they must submit to the rules of the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to get in by obtaining the Old Testament rules. All of the Israelites who are going to be saved from, from that time on were going to be saved because they repented of their sins and received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And that's the only way that anyone ever enters the kingdom of heaven. There are some Christians who are very fascinated with the various feasts of, uh, and celebrations and ceremonies of Israel. And there's a certain sense which, if it's just curiosity, I think that it's harmless. But I think that uh, if you are saying, I'm going to observe these religious feasts as part of my worship of the Lord, you shouldn't do that. Because all of those have been abolished. Passover has been abolished. The Feast of Tabernacles has been abolished. And and all the various feasts of of the Jewish uh, religion have been abolished. They were all picturing a reality that has come. Continuing to observe Passover, continuing to observe the Feast of Tabernacles and so on in a religious sense is maybe compared to someone who has said goodbye to a loved one who had, let's say, to go overseas and serve in the army and so Every day the wife looks at the picture and maybe kisses the picture and prays to the Lord. Oh, I can't wait for you to bring my husband home. I'll be so glad to see him. And then the day comes when he steps off the plane and she's standing there in the airport with that picture. And continues to kiss the picture and look at the picture and say, Oh, you are so handsome. I can't wait for you to come home. And the husband is standing there saying, Honey, put the picture away. I'm here. And that's what the Lord says to anybody who is still wanting to observe the Jewish ceremonies. Honey, put the picture away. The reality has come. I'm here. And so, to all of our our Jewish friends and citizens, God have mercy upon on them all. But they will not be saved unless they submit to the terms of the covenant. Jesus Christ is in control of the kingdom of God. He has taken the scroll. He is now administering the kingdom of God. And there is a great many people from the nation of Israel who have come into the kingdom. And I trust still will come into the kingdom. And so when people say, is God finished with Israel? My answer is no. People who are part of Israel are part of the kingdom of God as long as they submit to the terms of the kingdom. But I think that this represents not just people who are going to be saved from ethnic Israel, but also people who are going to be saved from every tribe and nation. That I get because of what happens in the rest of the chapter, but I'm not going to try to preach the rest of the chapter this morning. Israel represents the true people of God. And we Gentiles have been engrafted into Israel. Turning your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. And we can see this taught in 
in Ephesians 2.12 that we, we have now become part of spiritual Israel. It says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's before you were converted. Well, what happens once you're converted? Well, you're united with Christ and you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. But at that time, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now that's all changed. And we are part of true spiritual Israel. And then turn forward a few pages to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And let's read several verses of Scripture here. But the first one is in Galatians. I said forward, but it's actually backward. Uh, Galatians comes before Ephesians. Ephesians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That means that if you are a person of faith, you are a son of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in this same chapter, Galatians 3, look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then turn the page over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, where it says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. I think that the word and there should be translated even because I think that he is describing the people who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. And so to conclude the sermon from Revelation chapter 7, when representing the people of God, he chooses to say there were 12,000 sealed from each, 144,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, that that is a symbolic representation that the Lord uh, saved many thousands of people out of the destruction of Jerusalem. When the winds of the horsemen are getting ready to fly into the land, an angel comes and says, not yet. We are going to put a seal upon those who belong to the Lord. And I think that this literally happened at the destruction of Jerusalem, not that there were people who were literally sealed on their forehead, but that the fulfillment of this was that many thousands of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were delivered. But I think that this also is something that that points forward to a general principle, that points to a general principle, and that is there is judgment coming. There is judgment coming on, on everyone. There's judgment coming on this world. Don't you want to have a seal on your forehead that says, this one belongs to me? Don't you want to not be among the ones who call to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Don't you want to be among those who, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to bring judgment upon 
the entire world. Instead of saying, oh no, instead you say, oh yes, amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. Well, this mark, this seal that you shouldn't be ashamed of, it needs to be on your forehead, it needs to characterize everything you do, it needs to be on your hand. This seal, this mark is given to those who, who comply with the terms of the covenant. And the terms of the covenant are these. Repent of your sin. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you'll be saved. We get to uh, celebrate this morning the fact that Jesus Christ has made this deliverance possible for us. He did it by coming in a real body, suffering in that body. And in his suffering, he shed his blood. And he did this as a substitute for sinners. He did this for all who believe in him. This is one of two ways that we show that we are dedicating ourselves to the Lord. The first way is through baptism. And uh, that's something that is, never needs to be